just as our communities today recognize that you can't understand policing and mass incarceration outside the history of enslavement and apartheid that those practices continue, you also can't understand policing's relationship to land besides in relation to settler colonialism. You know, that's not just an abstraction. Um, like, like we've been talking about, colonizers have always used surveillance and data to monitor populations that threaten them. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, greetings, uh, everybody. My name is uh, Hamid Khan with Stop LAPD Spine Coalition, and welcome to this evening's, this afternoon's, this morning's, wherever you are, a conversation hosted by Haymarket Books on a very critical subject that has been uh, in the news, that's been a part of our lives, that's been a part of the American journey for, for centuries now. Um, and, and I'm also joined by an, an amazing group of folks who are organizers, scholars, writers, uh, academics. Um, in, in November 2021, the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition released a report uh, automating banishment, the surveillance and policing of looted land. And uh, many things, out of many things that the report lifts is that uh, one of the things being that the report looks at the relationships between real estate development, displacement, gentrification, policing, and surveillance. And, 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 you know, just especially living in Los Angeles, what, what we need to be looking at is that the relationship between land and policing in Los Angeles is not just the physical presence of police, but also the structures built to maintain segregation and control, even when police is not physically present. Uh, I want to read a quick passage from um, the report before I uh, go to our to our speakers and our panel. Um, and the passage is part of the introduction of, of this report, and it says that data mining supercharges the violence of policing, enabling deep coordination between those who seek to criminalize our communities, to transform land, and to displace and banish our people. Data-driven policing also obfuscates the purpose of this violence, hiding it behind a veneer of science and objectivity. Sometimes our purpose is banishment, removing us from our homes and communities. Sometimes it's containment, restricting us from the areas police want to secure for gentrification. Sometimes it's blight, targeting areas for neglect in order to maintain racial and class hierarchies. Sometimes it's extraction, exploiting our wealth, labor, and resources. And sometimes it's elimination, killing or incarcerating our people. Whatever the purpose, what links these practices is the process of conquest. And that's what really brings us today 
that how this report looks at the relationship between real estate development, displacement, gentrification, policing, and surveillance. And while you know, more and more people are beginning to understand the role of data in policing. Less attention is paid to data-driven policing's relationship to settler colonialism and conquest. To talk more about it, we have uh, an amazing group of people. We have with us today Steve Diaz, who is an organizer at the Los Angeles Community Action Network, uh, working on campaigns how to improve the lives of residents of Skid Row. We also have uh, Professor Dejeuner Dozier, who is a, an assistant professor of human geography at Cal State University Long Beach and, and received her PhD in environmental psychology at the City University of New York. Uh, we have with us uh, Shakir Rahman, who is an attorney and an organizer with Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. And of course, we also have with us Mike Davis, who is a professor emeritus of creative writing at U University of California, Riverside, uh, who joined the San Diego chapter of Congress of Racial Equality in 1962 at age 16, and the struggle for racial and social equality has remain the lodestar of his life. Mike is also known for a lot of his writing, especially City of Quartz, excavating the future in Los Angeles. So let's get right to it. Uh, let me just go to you, Shakir, and what would be great is if whenever you all, uh, you know, just uh, share your thoughts, if you can just speak a little bit about yourself more, if I miss something, the the, the introductions are also listed in the, in, the, in the stuff that was uploaded in the invite as well. But uh, could you talk uh, a little bit about the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, what is the coalition, and what was the process that brought this report together? You're on mute, Shakir. Of course, that's how we're going to start. Um, hi, everyone. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, and thanks, Hamid. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll start, maybe kind of share some history of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. I should also say before I do that, that um, I've, I've been with the group for about two or three years. So a lot of this history that I'm sharing predates that, and I wasn't actually present for it, just more relating kind of intergenerational knowledge that's been shared with me, including from uh, others who are on this panel now. Um, so the Southern Spine Coalition formed uh, 11 years ago, and and, and and basically at the start was a bunch of people just coming together to fight the local impact of national security policing. This was a time when most of the political work around national security policing, kind of in this post-9-11 era, centered the notion of privacy and focused uh, primarily on enforcement of the of the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, privacy, of course, is a privilege that that many people aren't afforded to begin with especially in neighborhoods like Skid Row, where our work is based, uh, where the Stop Based Science Coalition is based at the Los Angeles Community Action Network. Skid Row is also where LAPD throughout history has experimented with new surveillance technologies and methodologies, almost like a laboratory for new forms of kind of policing and domination. And this has, I think, always made the empowerment and liberation of Skid Row residents crucial in the broader fight to abolish these systems everywhere. So another... And so, and so that's kind of our rooting in, in Row and kind of against this notion of privacy that so much of work around surveillance is, is organized around. Um, another aspect of this history that, that I think, you know, resonates with me personally as someone who grew up in, in a Muslim immigrant family is that for the first decade after 9-11, a lot of the political work related to national security policing was really focused on the impact on Muslim communities and, and kind of trying to lessen that discrimination against Muslim communities. 
what Stop Ugly Spying came together to confront was also that, and also seeing how the police state uses demonization of Muslim communities and Muslims to secure more weapons for targeting the same black, indigenous, poor people who have always been the targets of policing in this country. And so these, those are the communities that have always faced the worst brunt of policing, yet it was this impact on Muslims that had been centered and, and is also kind of the subject of the reform. And in that way, I think Stop IP Spying um, formed as an effort to organize against reform and reformist kind of strategies with, you know, those national, these national security policing programs at the time were being reformed kind of in response to um, a lot of that, that mainstream civil rights advocacy to lessen the overt discrimination on Muslims. But those reforms we recognized were going to empower police departments to target kind of whoever they deem suspicious or dangerous, kind of under these like new criteria that were developed that were meant to be more neutral. And we obviously knew um, who they were going to target. And we knew that this, this reform, again, was going to expand and sanitize the system's violence. So those programs, um, kind of those, those these like sort of national security suspicion based programs, really brought to local policing a model of kind of data mining intelligence gathering that later over the years laid the groundwork um, along with kind of broken windows policing and community policing and the use of data for what we now call predictive policing systems. Um, the Stop AP Spying Coalition started organizing against LAPD's implementation of those programs in 2013. And years later in 2020, we finally succeeded um, through all this community pressure and community organizing to um, end um, those, what we now call the first generation predictive policing programs. That organizing, that work is what led us to form a uh, land and policing work group um, to study data-driven policing's kind of relationships like Hamid was saying, to real estate development, to settler colonialism. And that's what this automating banishment report comes out of. Um, and then the report, just to say, you know, how it was produced, like you're saying, I think just the collective study is the primary thing I would call it. Um, um, you know, literally dozens of community volunteers, largely non-professional researchers, residents of Skid Row, tenant organizers, housing advocates, meeting for over a year to kind of just pour over LAPD records and collectively analyze a lot of what we're sharing today. Um, I want on that note, shout out uh, Jamie Garcia and Tiff Guerra, two of our organizers who led that work group over the years. And um, Steve and, and Dejanay also on this panel were also essential in that work. So um, I'm really grateful to uh, be here with everyone today to, yeah, to, to share that analysis. Yeah, and then uh, uh, you know, last we checked that uh, there was about what about twenty six different people who contributed to the writing of the report, and you know, just truly making it a community based collective effort. Yeah, dozens of people. Yeah, collective study. Thank you, thank you, Shakir. Um, so one of the uh, the guiding values at the Stop NAPD Spying Coalition has been, uh, which has really just led our work, is that uh, it's not a moment in time, but a continuation of history, uh, where we look at the the historic trajectory of uh, policing and 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 various other you know impacts on the community. And when we talk about policing, it's not just looking at the 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 infrastructure of policing, but how our bodies have been policed over time uh, through various public sectors and various other things, and how we then look at that historic trajectory and ground it in current realities. So, so Dejanay, what are, what, are, what are the histories and uses of surveillance that, uh, that you know, just we've been, we're organizing against and, and in context of this report? Yeah, thanks, Hamid. Yeah, so when I think about the history and sort of 
the rootedness we are in the history of surveillance, I ultimately think about how the reproduction of anti-Black violence has been made in order to squelch mass mobilization for Black freedom and Black liberation, both in the past, but also today. Um, and so, I mean, when we often think about this, we think about this in terms of prime examples of elimination, right, of members of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, right, and these other key uh, figures of Black freedom movement. So we think of um, the surveillance that people like Malcolm X or Fannie Lou Hamer or Asada Shakur, right, experience um, during these liberation movements between the 40s and the 70s. Um, and these really set up a context for how we understand Black liberation movements and their visions as a, at, through surveillance, um, as a repression tactic, right, of these visions, right, these visions for transformative change. Um, and so thus these people experience various kinds of things like wiretapping, right, um, being observed and followed by unmarked cars or followed um, walking around or protesting at other in particular events. Um, in their insurgent call for freedom. But the, I think we also need to think about surveillance in this moment or in these moments as really trying to um, intervene within a tight-knit community and network um, for freedom movements, right? And so various activists stayed in people's homes um, and there were various kinds of interconnected community relationships that really helped to prop up, prop up freedom movements um, and, and those are the sites in which uh, we also see surveillance happening. So everyday people who help to support support leaders and mass mobilization also experience surveillance. And, and we don't often take that into account, but that's necessary for thinking about surveillance practices and its expansion today on everyday people everywhere. Um, and so I think that's sort of the history that we can ground it in and really um, thinking through how anti-Black violence is continuously produced. Um, but then also, I think the ways that movements are also um, repressed through other means. So really intimate domestic space, psychological warfare, infiltration of meetings and organizations, right? Like the gamut of practices that we can see in those spaces. Um, this scholar, Robin Spencer, has this book, uh, The Revolution Has Come, and she really talks about how federal surveillance agents have worked to even interrupt, right, intimate partner relationships uh, to create infighting through fake letters that would detail members of members cheating on one another, right, in the Black Panther Party. So this very like, detailed and intimate way of trying to produce warfare within movements is something that I think really grounds the insidious nature of surveillance um, in people's everyday lives. 
Thank you for for drawing that out, uh, Dejanay. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, our previous report before the bullet hit Savadi, you know, we we, we covered some of that stuff as well. And a lot of our work is also inspired by Professor Simone Brown's work as well, uh, Dark Matters, and how they capture the history of surveillance uh, during slavery. And uh, actually, our report starts with a quote from uh, uh, their book, uh, surveillance is nothing new to black folks. It is a fact of anti-blackness. So, so you know, that is the, the, the history that we are talking about. So, Steve, uh, being in Skid Row and, and you know, just uh, you, you lived in Skid Row, you've been organizing in Skid Row. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about the, the role of surveillance through this historic lens of its impact on uh, on unhoused communities and, and folks in, in Skid Row and just the community in Skid Row. No, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Hamid. Um, for me, I definitely felt that it was super important when I was hearing about the report to get involved in the report because the report really talked about just how <clears throat> data is now being used. And from a Skid Row perspective, data has always historically been used, right? The only difference is, you know, before it was the field identification card, then it went into the sort of the assumption and the assumption went into the map. And then the map went into policy and then policy went into practice. So from the Skid Row perspective, when you look at it, that sort of has been the evolution of data and surveillance in our community. And the, when the community is sort of being targeted, surveillance is being used and data is being used as a means to deploy resources. When gentrification is being pushed, the the data is being used to sort of target properties and buildings. For example, the building where I lived at when I moved into Skid Row was targeted by a program called the Citywide Nuisance Abatement Program, where the city used the set of data that it wanted to use, not the data that was more important to tenants, not the tenant voices, not actual things that would help tenants, but really what they thought would sort of demonize and create a very specific story and narrative as to what they wanted to say to target the building, which created a whole set of other conditions where now the property owner was able to say, I have this city policy, I have this city document that says I have to move you. And of course, for folks that don't know what <clears throat> policies affect them or support them, of course they're going to move. And most importantly, of course they're going to move when the guy who has access to their to their unit keys coming knocking at their door every day. So that's just an example, one example of how data and policing and really surveillance has been used. But you can look at the story of Skid Row for history, whether it be sort of how homeless policies targeted or the Safer Cities Initiative, where one of the main objectives of the Safer Cities Initiative and the policing effort was to ensure that there was documentation built on people. That's how we ended up getting over 13,000 citations issued and over 15,000 arrests the first year of the deployment. Um, so just just to share sort of like, for us, it's a continuing evolution of sort of how they've been targeting our communities. And just to highlight what folks said as you were transitioning, it's a really con continuing evolution of targeting black folks and brown folks as well. Yeah, um, Shakir, uh, as uh, uh, I uh, shared 
that in the uh, starting off in this conversation that uh, one of the things the, the report also lifts is by by saying that while more and more people are beginning to understand the role of data in policing less attention is paid to data driven policing's relationship to settler colonialism and conquest so so you know let's uh, you know let's talk about like surveillance as uh, you know colonial harm and also so yeah any thoughts on that Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's another sort of focus on the report. And just I think the way we see that is just tracks just even what Steve was just saying of that, you know, when people these days, when you hear about data or you hear about algorithms and the, or you hear about data, you think of what we're talking about is just, you know, new technology of algorithms of data mining. But these kind of data driven policing, it stretches back to even the history of broken windows. Policing is all a practice of, of, of constantly harassing, managing populations in order to generate data on them. And even further than that, you know, as as we as we look back and, and, and want to set out to study policing's relationship to land, we knew we couldn't understand that relationship without tracing the history of settler colonialism and conquest and how data and, the, and kind of intelligence gathering were part of that. And I think, you know, just as our communities today recognize that you can't understand policing and mass incarceration outside the history of enslavement and apartheid that those practices continue, you also can't understand policing. Policing's relationship to land, besides in relation to settler colonialism, you know that's not just an abstraction. Um, like, like we've been talking about, colonizers have always used surveillance and data to monitor populations that threaten them. That's true, you know. In, in that's true whether we're talking about the colonization of, you know, my kind of ancestors in India or European imperial rule in Africa and Asia or settler colonialism in the Americas. Um, from the start, we actually, this is a, I can, let me read a quote um, from the report, which is, from the start, settlers in the U.S. have occupied land by policing it. Under settler colonialism, everyone and everything existing on that land must be dominated, managed, or eliminated to make way for the needs of white supremacy and capital. This is why we have police. So that's the function of police that we've been that we um, you know wanted to uncover in this report, and this isn't just the past. Like these histories are, I think, crucial for understanding the logic of today's policing of land. For example, today in the sort of political warfare around um, homelessness in LA, you often hear people ask like. Why is the city spending so much more money on criminalizing homelessness instead of just building housing? That it would cost the city less money and less killing to create enough housing rather than this regime of ticketing, arresting, caging, kind of sweeping people around all the time. And and you know the the idea is the notion the question is like as though that's not logical to spend the money that way. Well, it makes sense I think when you think about it in the logic of settler colonialism that the city's property owners are choosing criminalization over housing because that's what settlers have always done using policing and prisons and militarism to violently possess land and that's you know that's what the landowners and the people who kind of drive politics in our city are doing that's how the ideology of settler colonialism remains deeply present today um, and from that perspective i think abolition we see it as you're saying surveillance as colonial harm and abolition as a continuation of kind of the anti-colonial struggle of of many of our ancestors It's Thank you. Because oftentimes people talk about gentrification and forget to talk about policing and occupation. So definitely, like when we're talking about land use, it's all about policing as well. Sorry about that. Arnie. No, no, yeah. no. Please, please. We yeah. want to make this a free flow. Go ahead, Jason. Please. No, I also want to just shout out Kelly Lido Hernandez's work too on the settler colonialism piece and caging as well. Yeah, no, definitely. 
Um, well, Mike, uh, first of all, thank you again very much for making the time. Uh, so I wanted to just go to you that, uh, you know, you've been a scholar, you've, uh, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, you, you, and, uh, you know, your, your work has married science, archival research, personal experience, and creative writing uh, with a razor-sharp critique of empires and ruling classes. So, you know, what you're hearing uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, as we are, we are, we are sharing, I mean, you folks have been talking about the report. Uh, how does this uh, fit into, you know, f- from your vantage point and your work uh, into the broader histories of uh, surveillance and policing? Well, I have to say that this report is is really quite magnificent, and uh, I can be. Uh, uh, you know, happier to see the level of coordinate, coordination between activism and, you know, in research that now exists in the city. Uh, this is just far beyond anything we've had in the past, but always needed. Reading the report, I experienced a kind of odd deja vu. In the 1970s and in the early 80s, I lived at various times in Belfast, Northern Ireland. My oldest daughter was born there just following the uh, the end of the hunger strikes, uh, in which 13 Irish revolutionaries starved to death rather than submit to criminalization uh, in jail. And over the period of time, more than a decade, it, I became fascinated by the evolution of the British Army's use of surveillance, but also their increasing role in urban planning uh, and in architecture. Uh, I remember one day, one of my neighbors came by and said, "Um, have they asked you about your dog yet? And I said, I don't have, you you know, we don't have a dog, Sean. And he, he said, no, they're asking everybody about their dog. The army's going house to house all over West Belfast. I said, Sean, why are they doing that? He said, it's very simple. They stop a lad in the street and ask where he lives. And they look up because they already had uh, primitive laptops and say, oh, uh, Mrs. Finnegan lives there. What, what's her dog called again? And uh, they were literally inventorying and classifying every bit of information. They had developed this system, state-of-the-art system of sonic triangulations whenever a gun went off in the city. Uh, It was immediately located. And then, as finally the government began to replace some of the worst housing with new new housing, uh, they intervened to have the whole housing plan redrawn. The problem in their mind was that the traditional gridiron of of streets and uh, little row houses, what would happen is that they'd be chasing um, some guys and the guys, neighbors would open the door, the guys would run in out the back door, jump the fence, the other neighbors would open their back door and they could run right through it. The British Army would chase them, but they'd have the door shut in their face every time. So they said, we don't want that. We want cul-de-sacs. Okay. 
In other words, if you're in here, we don't want you, we don't want the neighbors uh, letting you get away. We want to make it impossible. I, I could go on with this. The fact that all the army bases in this city were built next to schools, for instance, to deter, you know, you know, rocket bombing. And we could, of course, you know, then turn to uh, Israel and the whole history, evolution of technologies and data mining uh, to control Palestinians. Now, right now, the hub is is pointed out in this report, very importantly, the hub of so much of this that connects uh, the incarceration of entire communities and people with uh, big city policing in the United States, been the universities. And in the report, maybe um, uh, Desjardins, uh, Tell us more about this. UCLA ended up playing uh, a crucial role in the design of a very Orwellian system of, of, of surveillance, although nothing probably surpasses the Jacobs School of Engineering. I live in San Diego, and the Jacobs School of Engineering, UCSD, uh, has probably the most advanced research outside of uh, at least the Washington, D.C. area into surveillance, algorithms of all kinds, also into uh, uh, into drones. So the whole point is that from separate localities and colonial projects or projects of, of social control, all this is merged together not just on a metropolitan scale, you know, but internationally. The University of California has a program of exchange with Israeli engineers and uh, uh, data researchers, which actually leads to the exchange of, you know, state-of-the-art stuff. And we know, of course, that Israel's uh, most advanced surveillance system is wrecking havoc all over the world, uh, spying, you know, spying on 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 everybody. Finally, I one thing I just wanted to add oh, is that the suburbs play an incredibly important role in this, because uh, it's now the case in virtually every suburb in Southern California. It's not illegal to be homeless. It's just illegal to be sleep on a bench even during the daytime or lay in the grass. It's illegal to feed homeless people. So one city after another, uh, in a kind of domino effect, has adopted ordinances and policies, and police, police, uh, you know, offensives to keep homeless people out or to criminalize them in a way that they can be carted off at the, um, you know, the discretion. In Los Angeles County, of course, Santa Monica, the city of Santa Monica, uh, People's Republic of Santa Monica has been the forefront of uh, attacking uh, 
homeless people and and the people who you know attempt aid them. But I want to emphasize to the listeners again, this is really an incredibly important report and work being done here. It, it really lifted the scales off my eyes. I had no idea how far this had progressed since I first started looking at similar things uh, 30 years ago. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Uh, uh, you know, just in Dejeuner, as a obviously as a, a professor of human geography, we're talking about urban geography and the urban landscape where, where, where the ground the ground beneath people's feet is being literally demonized. You know, to criminalize people on that, and uh, and how this confiscation and banishment from land continues to to happen. So, with with that, with that setting, uh, uh, Dejeuner, let's let's kind of bring it uh, to the present where we are. Are, um, that that uh, you know how do these uh, how do these histories and and you wish the report also lifts as well and the community based research that uh, it said it, uh, that the report kind of just uh, 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 you know projected um, where are we at in the, this moment and how do we how do we set up our organizing agendas in our research as well and how do we even look at the information that we have? Yeah, thanks, Hamid. Yeah, so um, when we have been thinking about this, we have been thinking about surveillance as a greater automating um, ecology, algorithmic ecology. And really, um, that has emerged from organizing and community-based research. And so when we think about this, we think about how particular points and ongoing practices of surveillance have been ramped up through data-driven approaches um, towards banishment, social control, repression, but then also, right, um, real estate development, the continuous extraction of land. Um, and so in particular, we are endeavoring to show this greater apparatus of data-driven policing. And so just as Mike just mentioned just now about how, for example, right, academic institutions within Los Angeles' local context, but I think this it's across the board everywhere, um, um, is, re is really in, um, invested in producing predictive policing technologies. Um, and I think even on the back end of that, like the ideological production of ideas that justify 
the demonization and, and surveillance of communities, right? Um, and so, so Stop LAPD Spine had did a public records request um, and found information on UCLA researchers who who created surveillance technologies that were then contracted um, by LAPD, right? And so even in Los Angeles police budget, as of 2020, as of 2020, right, we saw information on how certain researchers and people uh, were being funded by the LAPD, right, that there was that public dollars are actually funding research towards surveillance, right? So that kind of complicity of both um, academic institutions and its and its um, idea of prestige, but also knowledge production as reproducing um, the various colonial harm, right, of both academia, but then on the other end, um, policing and policing institutions. Um, and I think also because we also think about um, science and uh, academia as like prestige, right, and this idea of like this guise of scientific objectivity, Right. But we know that these things have racist and and colonial underpinnings. And so we can extend that to the ways that we think about community policing even. Right. And the ways that LAPD itself like cultivates its own idea of community through practices of information gathering. Right. So so even when we think about community policing, we think about passing out toys to kids. We think about starting a little league or a basketball club for kids in the community by by police officers. But these become the spaces in which the police get a more intimate interaction with people in the community that then they can gather information on members of the community, log and detail um, various characteristics of the of the neighborhood, of people's families, right? Um, and so I think this is this ties to the greater sort of ecology of the ways that um, information gathering and surveillance works. And I think we have to then connect that to the histories of how surveillance is about repressing social movements, right, towards transformative change, right, but then also automating, right, um, and, and normalizing um, surveillance and surveillance technologies um, to the point where we're paying for them, right? We're paying for them. And so the, our, the work is about dismantling and, and, um, um, and delegitimizing that. Yeah, and then uh, giving a shout out to Free Radicals, uh, another group as well that with whom we collectively developed that whole algorithmic ecology uh, framework as well uh, that look at this whole intersection. And, and, and you know, Mike talked about uh, academic complicity and how deep, deep, deep that runs along with obviously the nonprofit complicity and how these things are funded and fueled. Uh, Shakir, you want to uh, uh, share some thoughts about what Dejanay was also uh, sharing on? Yeah, yeah. Let me talk more about the, this algorithmic ecology, like this tool and this concept. 
and where it comes from and kind of what, you know, about the, what it shows about data-driven policing. So the tool that I think was on the screen um, originates kind of in our efforts to uncover whether PredPol, which is uh, this predictive pol- uh, policing algorithm that was developed, like Dejanet was talking about, by UCLA academics and is now sold by a for-profit company owned by um, uh, two UCLA professors, including an anthropology professor. So we were trying to trace whether that algorithm had a role in LAPD's killing of Charlie Africa, a Skid Row resident who police shot to death um, in his tent in, in 2015. Here's a photo um, on the screen, I think, of, of, of protests where uh, Charlie Africa was living and where he was killed. Um, so we wanted to see if the, the as, as we were, you know, researching this killing, we wanted to see if the PredPol algorithm had a role in dispatching police to that location. Um, and, and PredPol, basically, the way it works is it harvests crime reports and crime complaints to help police, you know, select hotspots where they claim crime will happen in the future. So the conventional critique of these kinds of, you know, um, uh, algorithmic programs is that is kind of based on this notion of a feedback loop. The idea that because the algorithm is feeding on bad data, the output is going to be bad data. Racism in, kind of racism out. And based on that notion, what you would expect as you map out the PredPol hotspots is a heavy concentration of policing and hotspots in Skid Row, since we know from lived experience that Skid Row has the city's kind of heaviest concentration of police deployment, of ticketing, of arrests, of stops. And so you would expect a deep concentration there. But um, if you can see the the map on the screen, um, when we map the hotspots, this is what we saw. We saw that the hotspots, rather than, if anything, what they're forming is a perimeter around Skid Row at precisely the points where developers are now working to turn Skid Row's kind of one of the city's largest remaining vestiges of, of affordable housing, trying to gentrify those into luxury lofts and, and penthouses. So, you know, that's kind of that's the sort of almost like a digital wall, like a, a digital form of apartheid around that perimeter. And the feedback loop notion doesn't capture that. You know, you can't understand what's going on in this map without understanding the logic of development, the logic of containment um, and, and extraction that have always the city has always used to police and, 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 and um, occupy Skid Row. When I say extraction, and this is, I think, going to get into what we'll be talking about later of the real estate development, is just to explain a little more, because, you know, I think it can get hard to grasp how extraction works for a community that, that you know, we know is is materially deprived and, and neglected and dominated in the way that Skid Row has been. Like, what value can you, are, are you extracting from a community like that? It's not like, you know, wages or labor. The answer is land. That Skid Row sits among real estate that has become extremely valuable, And in order for that value to happen, in order for that land to be profitable right now, the people living on that land needed to first be deliberately, you know, systemically harmed and neglected by the state over decades. That deliberate harm is what makes the land kind of such a, you know, potential for profit for these developers. And, you know, Skid Row is the the starkest example of that. You can see that like really starkly on this map of this kind of just divide, but it's true about gentrification and policing, like, like Steve was saying, everywhere in the city. It's true in, you know, South Central is true in East LA. And it's through this process, this kind of historical process of 
organized abandonment, um, a term, you know, we know from uh, Ruthless of Gilmore or underdevelopment, a term that we kind of know from um, history of colonization, Walter Rodney, the city through those processes created conditions where the real estate developers and investors can now redevelop these neighborhoods, displace longtime residents and extract, you know, massive kind of value and profit. So I think, um, yeah, so I think, you know, policing facilitates all that. And I think, you know, that's what I think we're going to go back to Steve and Dejeuner to hear more about that, right? Yeah, uh, Steve. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, can I just chime in? Because I feel like the other piece that's missing is also how the state sort of subsidizes, not just monetarily, but also in so many different ways, the policing to occur in those neighborhoods. So, for example, the in the city of LA, there's something called the Community Safety Partnership, where the housing authority was giving away re- park and recreation space that it had in order to allow the police officers to be stationed within the community. So think about on top of already subsidizing them millions of dollars for bonuses for partaking in the extra patrolling of the neighborhood. So not only is the policy being created to where more money is being given, the resource that was once a community resource is now also being given and taken away because those programs now don't become open to everybody in the neighborhood. They become open to the people that sort of are play nice or work nice with that sort of uh, leadership that is created by those police officers. And of course, uh, you know, just uh, uh, we're based out of Skid Row. Los Angeles Community Action Network is uh, our family and our home. That's where we are based out of. And historically, you know, just uh, Skid Row has always been a laboratory for, for and, a, and a testing ground for all of these things. Body cameras, they were launched in Skid Row. License plate readers, they were launched in Skid Row. Um, you know, Stingray technology that was launched in Skid Row. Uh, Closed circuit television. And then, of course, you know, just we talked about broken windows policing so so i think you know just Dejani, you, you started speaking more about it and and in your research and and you know so 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 let's build on that that how does skid row has historically really informed us and and the impact on skid row so it gives us almost a a guidebook into what this what this uh, you know what to expect quite simply put as to what the history has been and and where are we at yeah and you know i can only really think about like really like showing the kind of core of this problem right by like talking about deborah burton's story right and talking about the ways that deborah was um an act you know activist organizer with la can um grandmother you know black woman and resident in skid row And in 2013, she was charged with eight counts of assault and battery for blowing a toy air horn, right? A toy air horn that would be used at at graduations, right? And she was protesting these safety walks that um, were happening where um, LAPD, um, members of shelters and missions, right? Leaders of those things. And business were trying to territorialize and lay claim to Skid Row, right, and the various broken windows policing practices they were implementing. Um, And so Deborah had went to trial, right, saying that you're not going to repress our our activism, activism that 
and organizing that work to call attention to and delegitimize criminalization, right? And that Steve and others in LA can were doing, right? So the various broken windows policing practices that were happening had made Skid Row the most highly policed community, right? As in in between 2006 and 2010, right? With six million millions of dollars, right, going into um, uh, having about 80 officers um, within a 50 block area. Um, and which resulted in LAPD carrying out with just within two years between 2006 and 2008, 19,000 arrests, 24,000 citations, and 2,000 residents being incarcerated, right? And this is for a neighbor, a poor area, a neighborhood of mostly Black residents, only 15,000 residents, right? Some of which who live on the street. And so Deborah was protesting, right, these safety rocks that were territorializing policing and real estate development and gentrification. And her repression really called attention to the fact that people were successfully through legal aims, through community organizing, uh, delegitimizing these practices. And ultimately, like I said, it went to trial and she was found not guilty on all charges, right? But I think it's important to highlight those stakes um, of the work. Um, it's someone like Deborah's story that you may not hear about in really calling attention to gentrification um, induced policing. And when, and then I just want to point to, I think there's an image, John, of like a Skid Row uh, or a downtown LA map there have been various kinds of redevelopment plans implemented in downtown LA since the 1960s. And I think you'll see on that map various colors, right? And then obviously the Skid Row area. Um, and the preconditions of, of the, the way that Skid Row became the most highly policed community um, is the 1976 containment policy, which worked to really solidify this downtown elite versus West Side elite um, struggle within Los Angeles city making. I mean, I think Mike, you might have some comments about that. Um, but West Side, like West Side downtowners, um, there were already a, a presence of skid of a skid row in downtown before the 1960s, obviously. Um, and downtown elites had envisioned a redevelopment plan to completely wipe out the various social services that would make that area, uh, that would um, help to solidify gentrification and redevelopment, right? LA's first renew urban renewal program. And um, as a result, West Side elites, right, did not want the pos possible displacement of poor people into the rest of West Side. You're talking about Beverly Hills, you're talking about Venice Beach, right? You're talking about that area. Um, and so West Side elites came to the table along with charities and nonprofits um, in an effort to maintain the social services in downtown LA so that this vision of suburban sprawl could persist and proliferate versus the vision of downtown elites, right? And sky rises, right? A vision that the um, West Siders did not want. Um, and so this containment plan moved various social services from throughout downtown to a 50 block area, 
regularly police people within that th- uh, that area, but also within the buffer vo- bus- buffer zone of um, Skid Row. And I think the larger vision of those charity and nonprofit organizations were to create a neighborhood for poor people. But ultimately, it ended up being a trap. Um, over time, it is people like Debbie, Steve, and others who have made the area a neighborhood and also have made Skid Row really the uh, an epicenter of abolitionist visions of the city, not just through policing, right, but through housing and the way that we can transform how we live and be in L.A. Um, and so I think these preconditions of, like, um, visions for the city, right, that make Skid Row also relate to why we have this amazing report, but then also a litany of organizing strategies, discussions, and ideas coming out of Skid Row to resist, right, this this containment, this segregation and making the city and calling for us to see and envision something else, right? And that comes with abolishing the police and that comes with dismantling surveillance technology and practices. Oh, thank you, Dejeuner. Just uh, that's where it is. Kid Row is ground zero. That's where uh, the, these fights are happening. Uh, Mike, would you like to comment on that? Uh- well, we have to remember what Skid Row was originally. <clears throat> uh, the first Skid Row, of course, was in Seattle and named after sliding uh, timber down to the, uh, you know, the waterfront. But the Skid Rows on the West Coast and also in Chicago were where these faster armies of single male uh, workers who worked in the lumber camps, uh, fishing, construction, and above all in agriculture. They wintered in the cities, and these were the Skid the Skid Rows. But the point is that most people you know, had jobs. They were only in the city uh, part-time. Over time, more and more people stayed. But there were jobs in the central city. I remember when I first came to L.A. in 1965, and it was before the complete demolition of, of, of Bunker Hill. And there were still jobs for things like elevator operators, janitors, uh Years later, I was working as a a heavy-duty truck driver in East L.A. Uh, If you wanted to unload freight cars, all my boss had to do was get on the phone and bring up people, uh, you know, from Skid Row. It was a a functioning, to some extent, you know, stable uh, economy. And then came, of course both urban renewal. And I once ran a left-wing bookstore on 7th and Union. And often in the mornings, you'd find dead bodies on the sidewalk. These were elderly people displaced from Bunker Hill and downtown uh, across the freeway. And uh, at that point, they seemed to be dying like flies. But equally important, was the destruction of the job base uh, 
for the casual uh, workers, uh, people who had degrees of substance abuse, but still, you know, were able to earn a living. And then the diminution and destruction of the affordable housing downtown, the tenements, the, you know, the residential uh, uh, hotels. And by this point, it's impossible to speak about the creation and evolution of Skid Row without reference to the major actors. Uh, and one of those, uh, probably the most single important uh, corporate actor in downtown Los Angeles, the University of Southern California. And it was partially the architect of what is known as the Silver Book Plan, because there's a debate between developers. You're going to go west across the freeway toward MacArthur Park, or you're going to go south. And USC envisioned itself as the downtown pole of an urban renaissance that involved the clearance of poor human beings of you know all colors from the downtown area. And it owns or owned immense amount of property uh, across from the campus, uh, across the Harbor Freeway on the other side, you know, in downtown. And it worked hand in hand with the Center City Association and then with its successors. Meanwhile, it was clearing neighborhoods around uh, campus and, you know, displacing people. So it's not just... Uh, you know, relatively abstract, you know, developers or, you know, over overseas real estate money. You know, it's, you know, dear old USC and Tommy Trojan who played a role in creating and uh, maintaining the poverty and dehumanization that exists downtown. I keep emphasizing the universities here because I think there's an enormous need for a student movement or a university-based movement to look at all these things, the complicity in the development of surveillance and stealth technologies, the role of campuses as uh, developers, uh, the priorities that they impose on uh, you know, cities and, and, and so on. Uh, some people listening outside of Los Angeles will probably think, you know, Columbia University is a good example. It is. Uh, the Catholic Church is the largest urban and landowner, uh, you know, in in the United States. So based on the you know, terrific work that people have done here, we need to start naming names, you know, and we need to put their pictures up uh, you know, on, on the wall. People regard homelessness as something kind of landed from outer space, the kind of extraterrestrial thing, because they have, you know, no understanding of its history. My kids can't believe it when I say that uh, I remember when there weren't homeless people. And there weren't. You know, there were poor people downtown who survived by casual labor, but most of them, uh, the vast majority of them were, you know, were sheltered. In the 70s, when mass homelessness first appeared, 
uh, it was shattering. I mean, you know, and inexplicable. Now it's become so utterly naturalized that it removes so much of the, uh, you know, the moral, you know, pressure on on politicians and 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 developers. People don't realize this was a condition created by capital and redevelopment and, uh, you know, brutal policing in the judicial system, going back to the 1970s especially. No, uh, thank you. Yes, uh, Steve, actually, I was going to go to you. Please go ahead. Uh, wow. I, and, I, and while you're at it, Steve, I would also, uh, you know, uh, would, would, would love for you to speak more, too, because a lot of times surveillance and all gets seen through this very kind of a technical aspect of surveillance around, uh, you know, algorithms and all of that. But, you know, analog type surveillance and the various ways that crime prevention through environmental design, and you talked about the citywide nuisance abatement programs and all of that. So yeah, please, uh, uh, if you can add that to your thoughts as well. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I just wanted to sort of jump in real quick in where the conversation was at, because I feel like there's a very crucial point that's missing, and that in the evolution of Skid Row over the 30, 40 years since the 70s has really marked where we're at right now, right? Whether it started as this idea that we're gonna put a bunch of poor people together to this idea of being able to build community and solidarity and struggle and being able to be at a point where Skid Row has some of the best housing protection citywide. So I know that oftentimes, right, we talk about or we hear about the bad, but we oftentimes don't get to hear about the good. And I thought that was super important to highlight that because all these buildings that are being targeted now are being targeted for the specific reason of struggle and for the specific reason of people bringing attention to it and saying, we're not gonna let you just come here and take our buildings away and our neighborhood away. So I thought that that was super important. Um, and as we're talking about the fight now also, right? Like <clears throat> land use and policing is at one of the biggest forefronts in downtown right now, whether it be how trees, something as simple as trees are being cut down to ensure that the design of the street is accessible by cameras, whether it be parking spaces and sort of how parking spaces are taking away. LAPD spent tons of time taking away one of the biggest populated streets in Skid Row, it's called San Julian, taking away parking spaces from San Julian. So now you have a street that has hundreds of, hundreds of units where people fought to ensure that they were preserved, now without a parking, now without parking spaces, and where folks who are disabled have to walk blocks and blocks to be able to get there. Or whether it be the metro, the bus agency, the metro, metro, uh, metro bus agency taking away stops because they needed to make sure that those bus stops were accessible. Whether it be sort of the correlation of the city's a community plan update where they specifically call out uh, PREDPO and laser policing and sort of ensuring that Central Division has an equal amount of police officers deployed into the area. Why would you need a land use plan to call out these policing policies if it's not about sort of 
taking into account how we're going to occupy and remove from the neighborhood. And I also think of the other super important part is, oh, we can't forget going to Mike's point about calling out names, the city attorney, the council office, and the mayor's office all play crucial roles in these programs as well. The mayor's office helps fund them. The city attorney helps coordinate them because they have so much leverage as lawyers to be able to pass back and forth information and confidential information. And then of course, the council office helps implement them by bringing together sort of business interests to sort of help identify the areas that they feel that's important. So the struggle for land use in Skid Row right now definitely is at a forefront in terms of building specific organizing and sort of how buildings are being looked upon and sort of perspective of how other people are seeing us to the city's sort of uh, community plan where they're calling they're calling out policing efforts and have and the other part has been just sort of the targeting of quality of life crimes as well and the targeting of houseless individuals the city recently passed something called 4118 which is a very historical policy that has been used to clear people off of blocks where they basically say no one can sit, sleep, or rest. Basically, they take away a person's right to rest. And what they're doing now is they're using analog data. They're basically using perspectives and places that are targeted where the council office gets a phone call. Hey, I am so-and-so from the business association. I don't like there being six people on this corner. That happened right in front of Six and Main, one of the highest populated areas in Skid Row. So I just, I feel like it's a big circle as we're hearing all this conversation talk. Amit. No, thank you, uh, Steve. And uh, thank you, John, for putting that uh, map on, on the screen as well, because it just speaks to us. And while we are at it then, John, maybe uh, what may be not a bad idea since we're speaking about the report, if you can pull up uh, the, the, the site of the report and just for a minute or so, just want to have folks uh, kind of go through, uh, you know, just what this report does uh, or how it shows up on the website. Um, I think it's 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 really important that, uh, you know, as uh, you go to the report and you open up that link, and I want to shout, give a shout out to Chris, uh, who developed this whole interactive map and the website for the report just did, did a brilliant job with doing that, um, you know, just because I also want to remind us that we are, while we are focusing a lot of our conversation on Skid Row, um, you know, we also, there were two, a couple deep dives that the report does. One was in the Crenshaw District in South Central Los Angeles, um, and the other one was, um, is in Skid Row as well. So, you know, as you look at this, the the the, the site now, um, it, it's, it's a, it, when you open up this map and you scroll through this map, what you would see is that even looking at those squares with the names on it on, on the site, what you're looking at that how these data-driven policing laser zones, Los Angeles strategic extraction and restoration and anchor points, which are supposedly crime triggers, how they were used to completely criminalize, the demonize the land and people on it to the extent that they became actual kill zones of people. I mean, we, we, we went through hundreds of LAPD's documents, looked at you know where people were shot and killed were murdered by the Los Angeles Police Department, and you see names like Keith Percy, you see names like uh, uh, like Rosario Mack, and then you and then you see that how in South Central, where in the Crenshaw District, where there's a historic you know just area for the for the especially the Black community in South Central Los Angeles in Los Angeles, where the whole Crenshaw Mall was designated as a laser zone. 
And Grishayu Mack was murdered inside that laser zone, inside the mall as well, where where Nipsey Hussle, and that's been covered quite a bit out of the report as well by The Guardian and various other folks as well, that in, in that corner of, of Crenshaw and Schlossen, where Nipsey Hussle was trying to build, you know, and retain that, that, that black presence and ownership of businesses was then targeted very methodically uh, as uh, through anchor points and through these laser zones as well, which then, you know, moves a heavy presence and draconian uh, heavy handed policing to at one point that they just as Nipsey opened up his business within one week, there were over 130 stops or so, some like that by just one patrol car. So what happens to this thing? The crime alerts that were that we looked at when the crime alert says, um, you know, looking for a young black male, 16 to 18. Well, how many young black black males, 16 to 18 live? in South Central Los Angeles. So that's the, 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 the level of data-driven policing that's when we talk about it, and it's not just about a feedback loop of bad data in and bad data out. It's looking at the whole ecology that uh, that how it moves and, and what it does to us. Which And we're going to be opening up for those for questions now. But before I go there, um, uh, Shakir, uh, Mike has been speaking about uh, academic complicity. And, uh, you know, just and, and absolutely, Mike, just to 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 share with you that we don't shy away from naming names. We actually have been naming names and, and, and outing people who are complicit. So so especially the role of the reform and how these folks become almost, uh, you know, just just a, a script for white supremacy, how they, they are functionaries of the state. So Shakish, talk about the role of reform and where we are at and what this report lifts up. Yeah, yeah, I can name some names when it comes to reform. Um, yeah, I mean, generally, you know, reform is is police reform is how LA, LAPD is today trying to expand and sanitize and renew their predictive policing programs. Um, but, you know, before even getting into that, like even predictive policing, the, the tactics that Hamid you're talking about now originated as reform themselves. Like now we know that these programs are instruments of racial terror. You know, you're talking about this labeling of people and, and targeting, you know, these identifying these kill zones. Our research uncovered that that LAPD killed six people in, in, in these zones at the height of the laser program um, just in a six month period. Six people in six month period, all of them are black or Latino, four teens, four of them shot in the back. You know, that's the gruesome reality of these programs. But when these programs first launched, the Vera Institute for Justice, an advocacy nonprofit that works closely with the Department of Justice, promoted these programs as an example of crime analysis and predictive policing that police everywhere should adopt. The reality is, obviously, they just picked these locations and they even actually we've uncovered they the way they picked these locations was based on like literally demographic profiling of identifying this is an area with more um, um, uh, tenant occupied or more female house of ho head of household or obviously more black population, more next population. That's how they selected these zones and then dispatch police into them saying, oh, our data trends show that there's a lot of crime by 18 to 30 year old black men, which is, you know, that's not a trend. That's just literally racial profiling. Um, but that's kind of the data. Um, 
you know, as the community was starting to expose this toll and, and starting to, you know, fighting to dismantle these programs, LAPD pointed to that kind of pointed to Vera's endorsement saying, you know, look at this like liberal nonprofit that's 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 defending our violence. And that's kind of the cycle of reform. And even, you know, eventually we won, eventually we shut down these programs. But literally that same month that LAPD ended both of its its, its, its laser program and another one, Predpol, the, the UCLA developed when I was talking about earlier, they launched this new framework called Data informed community focused policing which i think we have you know an image there which is basically just you know taking a bunch of on the i mean on the surface it's literally just taking a bunch of you know reformist jargon and and uh, jumbling it together um and obviously none of that is what the communities that that fought against predictive policing demanded we were we were demanding abolition but this ecosystem of kind of nonprofit academic and industrial institutions act as kind of shock absorbers whenever there's that there's that resistance whenever there's that you know discrediting of police and they kind of help nourish new ideas for police helping them retool their violence and so this data informed community focused policing you know does that in a couple different ways um, including this um, what what uh, well I mean one the, the the main way they're doing it is saying like this that we're no longer collecting data to predict crime instead we're doing it to uh, make policing more accountable to make it more fair to make it more efficient which you know. So it's the same data inputs, it's the same systems processing, and it's the same outputs of violence and targeting and harassment, but now it's all, you know, this guise, all that's changed is this kind of reformist packaging around it of, of you know, it's, it's making policing more accountable. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, I mean, the, these tactics, I think, you know, going back to the community policing stuff that, that, um, you know, Dejeuner was highlighting earlier and Steve is talking about the CSP program, um, as well as, um, you know, there's like the, 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 uh, community safety walks that, that Dejeuner was talking about Deborah Burton, you know, these are all tactics, I think, and even all these reforms is of counterinsurgency. The goal is to secure more resources and legitimacy for police. And another goal, and I, I've been, I want to connect this back to what Dejeuner was saying in the beginning of, you know, the history of infiltration and disrupting of movement organizing, you know, that, that Dejeuner chronicled how, you know, the, the, like, you know, the forms that that would take in the past of, of Cointel Pro and, and, you know, community and groups literally being infiltrated, you know, political leaders being targeted, blackmailed, like that is obviously all still going on. But also with the rise of the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, we, the police state no longer needs to sometimes go through all of that trouble to do the same goals of dividing and diverting our movements and diverting radical organizing. Instead, they can collaborate with these reform professionals that, you know, claim to be avatars of the community or, or are kind of picked in that way, but, you know, and hiring them as consultants or community advisory boards and community policing. You know, we saw a lot of that pushed in response to the, the uprising in 2020, you know, the, the slogans of which were very clearly defund the police and and fuck the police. No one was saying we want more, um, you know, no one was taking to the streets, facing down batons to demand, you know, transparency criteria and, and oversight and community policing. But that's that's like that's the cycle I think of infiltration and co-optation that we keep seeing, um, and that's a big part of I think also when we when we talk about organizing against surveillance, organizing against spying, organizing against infiltration. That's a, that's a part of that too. 
Right. And now this whole language of guardrails that is being normalized as well by by uh, folks at uh, like in Oakland and all, all about like secure justice and Brian Hofer and some of these folks who just I mean, we have to really start looking at some of these folks as infiltrators within our movements, because, you know, this is how and that's maybe just uh, what Mike is also pointing to that we t- with that how soon we forget that infiltration is real. Infiltration takes very many shapes and the nonprofit industrial complex is deeply complicit and the academia is deeply complicit in this active infiltration which has caused extreme harm to our communities as well by being by being those those mouthpieces and offering these frameworks and roadmaps uh, for for these for these policies and programs um, so Mike uh, in the last uh, 15 minutes or so we're gonna t- uh, just a couple questions in the chat as well and there's a question here uh, for mr. Davis that over the decades that you have followed events in Southern California, especially with regards to trends to the trend setting Los Angeles Police Department, what has remained constant to policing over the years and what has changed? What remains constant is the fact that the LAPD is unreformable. Uh, it can't be reformed uh, based on the institution and the culture it surrounds it. Public safety has to be provided by a root and branch uh, reconstruction. One of the things that uh, has depressed me, frankly, and remember, I'm a very old, very old guy, so you know I have memory of <clears throat> various people in their incarnations in the 1970s and 80s. But what's depressed me is the number of people who started out as police reformers or as police opponents who've ended up uh, having lucrative relationships with the LAPD uh, as part of their ascent uh, in LA politics. Uh, I mean, the people really who were most prominent uh, in even in the 90s, uh, have gone on to become major apologists for, uh, you know, the LAPD in their ascent in the Democratic Party. And of course, one thing we have to be super conscious of is what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. You know, when Biden goes to New York to embrace his brother, Mayor, you know, Mayor Adams, on a platform of a restoring the status quo ante uh, in New York, not closing Rikers Island or or doing it, but, you know, putting more batons, uh, you know, on the streets. This is, you know, this is frightening. And the progressive wing, you know, which was so uh, energized by Black Lives Matter, you know, is in danger of losing you know, a great deal of ground over this. And it can't be covered up. I mean, pro-police, uh, hard pro-police advocates in the Democratic Party uh, are really should be progressive uh, uh, enemies. And we need to be, you know, we need to be clear on this. And people who, whatever their past is, I mean, somebody like Karen Bass, for instance, let me let me name names. You know, 
Karen has, a, you know, an extremely honorable, impressive history as a community organizer. But what kind of real difference is she uh, going to make uh, now that she's assuming, you know, more centrist positions and uh, because she has a keen eye for what's, you know, going on in the national democratic establishment uh, and other cities? turning away from uh, not only defunding the police, but even, you know, for kind of uh, almost harmless police reformism, you know, back to this punitive uh, model. Finally, there's one point I was hoping that maybe Shakir could tell us a little more about. You talked about predictive policing, but predictive policing isn't just data-enhanced policing. It's part of a major paradigm shift in corrections theory. You know, first we had punishment, and then we, you know, had somehow we were going to rehabilitate people. <clears throat> and now uh, the key word is incapacitation. And this philosophy, you know, basically we just accept we're going to warehouse large minority of people, but we're also going to learn how to identify them ahead of time, knowing who's already, you know, designated to end up uh, in the warehouse. But this philosophy and in the policies associated with the incapacitation are now applied to whole communities, uh, you know, in, in America, uh, not just in big cities, but also in, you know, smaller, you know, uh, uh, rust belt cities and, you know, deindustrialized places and in rural areas that, you know, say have been savaged by unemployment and, you know, opioid, uh, you know, addiction. The tentacles of this extend, uh, extend anywhere and the interconnections between suburbs and big cities, big cities and the rural poor, you know, and so on are tremendously important to, uh, you know, clarify and try and uh, build alliances upon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Go ahead, Shakir. It, yeah, Mike, I mean, there's not, I can't really put it much better than you, but I think one thing I'll add is, yeah, that it's, it's, on the one hand, it's a new paradigm, but it's also kind of literally eugenics. It's literally the notion that we can predict and literally, I mean, when we talk about programs like LASER, Hamid spelled out, it's that's for Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and Restoration. And the creators of the program talked about how the goal is it's meant to be similar to surgery, laser-like surgery of removing tumors from the community. Now, that language 100 years ago, this idea that we could use data and, and kind of prediction and trying to like understand which community are going to individuals or communities are going to cause harm in the future would have been called what it is eugenics and you know that was an extremely influential american scientific discipline back then and and also like so much of our our kind of uh even like legal uh, speaking as a little like even like legal 
um, um, frameworks around criminalization, around the power of the state to control bodies and manage bodies is formed in that period and directly influenced by the legacy of the eugenics movement. So, yeah, I think, you know, and we, we on the one hand, it's new, but on the other hand, that is, it's, it's just like, like there's so many histories that are failure to name them means that they're showing up in so many different ways. I think even in this like idea, the notion that like using data and experimentation of these kind of these reformist ideas that that oh we can fix policing we can calibrate it to the correct amount of like how much racial harm is okay versus up oh, no that's 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 off balance is that even you know I, I think the the part of the reason that we're so comfortable is the country so comfortable kind of talking about policing in that way is because we haven't really grappled with the the history and the legacy of, of eugenics which is yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you both. A couple more comments in there. And because I want to go to Dejeuner and Steve, uh, uh, we got about six or seven more minutes uh, about obviously the absence of how might the absence of data play in all this. And there's a comment about Long Beach Police Department getting caught with department issued phone and using auto deleting text messages out of the Tiger text uh, software that was being used where, you know, so how this technology is being used as a way they talk about transparency. But then what about that transparency? When, and, and being transparent about what? And then this comment that uh, are the complicit institutions limited to UCLA, USC, and UCI, and, well, locally, it's it's all across. Uh, we can look at Cal State Los Angeles about the forensic lab that they have and how deeply that is complicit with the with the police departments and how they work with that. And then, and you know, our uh, comp- academic complicity fight is kind of putting out and, and exposing folks like the policing project at NYU and, and you know, the Center for Policing Equity, you know, which is, which is at Yale or UCLA now, and various other are these programs, and then obviously naming these academics as well. So, so, so there's a whole cadre of people, um, you know. But obviously, there, there's a whole lot of folks who are doing some incredibly great work. So, need to honor their work as well. But you know, let me just go to both you and um, uh, Steve and Dejeuner about you know this this the, about the design space in cities that uh, you know there's thing like you know just that how is that designing of urban geography is being, you know, just taking place. And Mike talked about the cul-de-sac as an example. Um, you know, so 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 both Dejeuner in your research and then Steve in your organizing about like, you know, what is going on with the frontier and various other spaces. So we got about five minutes between the two of you. So yeah. Check it out, Dejeuner. Yeah, I mean, it's just zoning right zoning as one then you have the laser zones as an approach um i think a lot of the ways that there are strategies of containment that happen through policing practices right of of ways that they move through the streets um and then of course i think the ways that people are deeply segregated within Los Angeles matters in that regard as well. Um, The ways that people are continuously being banished and pushed out of the city into the high deserts, now out of here, right? People are moving to Arizona and things of that nature. Um, So I think that, you know, talk about urban design, but I think there is something to be said about uh, the political economy of the city, how things are changing for folks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Steve? Yeah, I would definitely add, I would add to that as a political design, right? Because oftentimes people talk about 
like X, Y, or Z. And the smallest things are also there on purpose, right? Whether it be how long it takes for the traffic light to sort of make somebody cross or how long the traffic light takes for the car to go through, right? If you start paying attention to those types of things or whether it be hostile architecture, sort of those little planters, right? Oftentimes people say, oh no, we're just trying to beautify the neighborhood. But what, is, what do those planters do? Who does those planters remove in terms of space access uh, as just some concrete examples? Or when you think about sort of how <clears throat> zoning, of course, is probably the biggest tool that's there. Or when you, But when you think about how resources are deployed, right, and what resources are deployed into what neighborhoods and what neighborhoods are forgotten. So I would say, like, when we're thinking about sort of design, we got to think about it from all aspects of it, even from the crossing walk, right? Why do you have the... Who has the crossing uh, crossing guard and who doesn't? And sort of how does that add to a perception of crime or not crime? And how does that add to a perception of safety or not safety? I mean, too, just to uplift, uh, just to uplift thanks, Steve, even like the Million Dollar Hoods project, which comes out of Ellie Ellis's idea of the million dollar blocks, right, that we spend millions of dollars policing communities. Just, I mean, that's obvious, but worth mentioning too around around mm-hmm. force policing and cities and deepening segregation right through through dollars right but then mm-hmm. we also have measure j which is a steep fight right now to reverse that to at least in, in in an incremental way um and people are struggling to see the reality of small things like changing traffic lights <laughs> to also having a cross guard Right, that really implement things um, and different or more thorough notions around safety for communities. That just Thank you. something happening, mm-hmm. and I think 20 seconds. Yes, please. Sure, sure, sure. Um, that just really prompted something in my head. Um, Stop Pelipiri Spying did some public records requests in the public housing development sites. And one of the things that was being, that was now being put out were speed bumps, were uh, <clears throat> crosswalks. And these were actually at one point in time community demands where the community wanted them. And the city said, no, we don't have money for that. But then when the policing effort came and the policing tied it to a quote unquote safety, the city was mysteriously able to identify these resources for something uh, that goes to basically not enhance lives anymore, but to help target people sort of living. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. So, uh, Mike and Shakir, do you each have a quick 30 second closing comment? <laughs> no, I just I, I want to thank the, uh, the people on this panel. Um, just tell you how impressed I am by your work and uh, makes me want to go out and start building a barricade somewhere. <laughs> One thing I would say uh, is ultimately almost all urban reform. Uh, is destabilized by private land markets and the private ownership of land. This was pointed out 150 years ago by one of the most important and now most forgotten radicals of the 19th century, Henry George in San, you know, San Francisco. Uh, even neighborhood improvements may only end up uh, making neighborhoods more attractive to wealthier people uh, uh, to move in, pushing people further down the line, out of town, out of country, who knows where, you know, a big part of this country are ultimately going to end up. 
uh, as a result of gentrification and other forces. We need to think of the problem, grab it, grasp it by its radical root, and look at private uh, property, particularly. Uh, you know, what's happening now that you have these huge real estate investment trusts that are buying up all the foreclosed housing uh, mm-hmm. in the country that have gained uh, just incredible more control over over housing and housing opportunities for people uh, since 2008. But that's for another conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Shakir, a uh, quick 20 seconds. Sure. No, the only thing I would add is, is that, you know, anybody can join our work. This kind of collective study that we're talking about is is that's the core of what we do along with direct action and all that. Steve was talking about those, those, um, those documents that we got about these environmental plans. That's just because someone in the group heard someone mention that at an LAPD commission. We filed a PRA and we're now, you know, analyzing those records. So that's, you know, something that, um, that, that anybody can join in and we, and we invite you to join the fight. Great, great. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, you know, this has been an amazing conversation. And I think the message uh, that uh, lifting from here is that although this report, Automating Banishment, uh, the Surveillance and Policing of Looted Land and the Work of Stop LAPD Spine Coalition focuses very locally and, and because that's where our fight is, but it offers, uh, you know, just opportunities and guidance and, and partnership that how one can take this work back into their local communities, how one can take it back into the local municipalities, local police departments. And just uh, as Steve was saying earlier on in this conversation, that that we that we cannot separate policing. We cannot separate what's going on today because the real estate development, displacement and gentrification are inextricably linked to policing and surveillance. So join the fight. Join us again. Thank you, Haymarket, for this opportunity. Thank you very much. And, and thank you to all for listening in and dialing in. So have a wonderful evening be safe, be healthy, and hopefully we'll see you out on the streets. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.